There has never been a more important time to make a difference and create better lives. I'm Andrew Liveris, former chairman and chief executive officer of the Dow Chemical Company and the former executive chairman of Dow DuPont. In this podcast series, you will hear from one of our Liveris Academy scholars interviewing a leader they identified as being important to them. Over the last two years, we've faced a global pandemic, and right now there is no better time to recognise the value of leadership in health and medicine in our society. But when you look past COVID-19 and into the future, it's also important to know how one can become an effective leader in the field, and how leaders can contribute to the advance of the medical profession in order to further improve lives of people around the world. Welcome to the Global Leadership Podcast, and in this episode we'll be taking a look into leadership in health and medicine. Hello, my name is Zaria Shah. And I'm a Bachelor of Health Sciences and Provisional Entry Medicine student at the University of Queensland, as well as, of course, a scholar of the Andrew and Livers Academy. Today, I have the honour of welcoming Professor Chris Perry, OAM, who is the President of the Australian Medical Association of Queensland and Director at the AMA Queensland Foundation. Professor Perry is also the Chairman of the Multidisciplinary Head and Neck Clinic at the Princess Alexandra Hospital, and was the immediate past President of the Australian Society of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. He has been a consultant surgeon in the field of otolaryngology for 34 years, and has worked throughout Australia, as well as in rural West Africa in Ghana. On top of this, Professor Perry is a doctor and professor at the University of Queensland. Professor Chris Perry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Derek. So the first question I want to ask you briefly about your journey. What led you to enter leadership in medicine from an otolaryngologist? Was there a defining moment or was there something that was always on the radar? Well, I decided to do medicine in my last year at school because I was kind of had this idea of my own practice, uh, sitting in the sun, driving to a suburban area without having to catch public transport in. I always thought I'd be a GP. Then I did fifth year, second last year at those days in medicine at UQ. And I came across Daryl Wall and the uh, academic general surgeons at Prince Alexandra Hospital. Uh, Gordon Clooney was the professor, and he was a really spearheaded liver transplants, modern liver surgery in Australia before he went to Melbourne University and left you know, Russell Strong and Steve Lynch to carry the baton and Queensland stayed the liver capital of Australia. And I decided to want to do surgery. Then uh, I enjoyed my last Second last term as a medical student, sixth year, I was specialties and I came across a whole bunch of specialties. I loved every aspect of medicine. You know, I was doing psychiatry, I was going to be a psychiatrist. I didn't mind being a pathologist when I was looking at slides. I enjoyed ENT. When I did my first term in general surgery, I also had to cover ENT at the MARTA. It was a toss-up whether I do ENT or, or general surgery. And I was quite an intense young man loved the surgery and everything else. To be honest with you, with the birth of my first child, I uh, became less enthusiastic for spending huge, huge hours in a hospital. It made me think more of ENT and less of doing hot bellies at one o'clock in the morning. It didn't seem quite so exciting. So I started to favour ENT. Uh, my advice to young doctors who think they want to do a surgical career is get your primaries as early as you can. I was able to do mine on eight weeks study, pretty much full time, and cracked it, just cracked it, and then thought, oh, I don't want to just be career orientated all the time, and consequently the desire to, to get out, go overseas and do something different. 
So that's why I want to do medicine. It's exciting and I love every part of it. So what led you from, from that point to actually going to leadership? Well, leadership is kind of a, an accidental pathway. When I was a medical student, my family weren't that well off financially. The, the whole world was a lot poorer then. Going through university, I, I worked in a pub all the way through, something like 15 hours or more a week. And on the holidays, I'd get a job in various hospitals, mostly as a wardsman or a clerk or in the pathology laboratory, and worked as a waiter, all sorts of things, pulling beers at pubs. And, and I didn't really have much time to be involved with leadership things as a medical student, and I was happy just to coast. When I was a medical student, if you got any more than a pass, it was regarded as being shameful because you uh, spent too much time studying when you should have been enjoying life. So I got through uni with passes, a couple of credits. I got one distinction. High passes weren't an issue when I got through. I went to this hospital in West Africa because it was connected to John Heron, a famous surgeon, ended up being a cabinet minister from Queensland. I got on very well with John. A university friend of John's was a nun in Ghana in West Africa in the Holy Spirit Order. I came back to Brisbane, did my ENT training for four years, went overseas for a fellowship in America and England. Uh, When I came back to Australia, I worked at the two private hospitals in Brisbane, looking after private patients as well as public hospital sessions. That was at St Andrews and Holy Spirit Hospital. And Holy Spirit, I just liked the hospital. And after I was there for about two years, they asked me to be on the medical advisory committee because the ENT surgeon older than me got a bit sick of going to a meeting once a month for two hours after work. And I got involved with it and I found myself eventually chair of the medical advisory committee and I was the last chair on their board when they made the decision to close the inner city hospital, in fact sell it and move off site to Chermside Hospital and all the issues involved with that. And I was approached by people in the AMA at the time to be involved with the AMA and also with the College of Surgeons. Now, I went on the State Committee of the College of Surgeons about 1998, so I've been in practice over 10 years. And about that stage, I'm not sure Holy Spirit Hospital was, I was on their committee, and they were looking at closing and moving. You can be on the State Committee of the College of Surgeons for about eight years, and There was a friend of mine, also an ENT surgeon, was on a bit longer than me, and a new chair had to be elected, and the chairs were normally people who'd been on the longest, and I was happy to sit back. And then he came up to me before one meeting, six months before the elections, and said, Chris, I'm I'm sick of this, I'm not going to be involved. I said, look, you've got to do it. He said, no, I don't want to. I said, well, it's up to me then to take. He said, yes. So I ended up being that. I got also asked to be the next president from Queensland for the ENT Society. So the ENT Society, the Australian Society of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, they rotate the leadership every two years in essentially an anti-clockwise direction of the states. It's like the upper house, it's like the Senate. So it's not all based in Sydney and Melbourne, which is great. I was approached by a fellow, one of my my colleagues, we'd been examiners together in ENT surgery for the college, and uh, he said, Chris, can you be you know, the vice president for two years to become the Queensland president of the ENT Society? And I said, oh, sure. So I became president after two years being vice president, president for two years, and then I was past president. They all have leadership roles. And then the same fellow said to me, look, I went on to being a counsellor of the College of Surgeons. 
can you do it? So I did it, and I was elected unopposed when it came up again, and then I was asked if I could do a role with the AMA. So in many ways, I've been asked to do things. I, I don't know why. Maybe I'm, I'm one of those people who can't say no. I think I just treat people as they'd like to be treated, and I don't mind saying things to people which may be uncomfortable. I'm happy to make myself unpopular, to put out an honest message, which is affecting patients in the Australian community. So why have I had all these positions? I, I don't want to be silly about it, but I really haven't sought it. It's come. I'm happy to do it. I might have a reputation for carrying through. If I say I'll do something, I'll do something. You know, I think Australian medicine, the Australian population need people who aren't driven by business, aren't driven by their own concerns and are happy to spend some of their family time trying to make sure things work for everybody in the Australian community. You mentioned your amazing journey, like you've been in so many different roles and how your career's jumped from one place to another. What would you say are the key steps one should take to become an effective leader in medicine? Key steps, you've got to work out whether you're interested in it. Any role I've had, I give as much as I can for it. I'm not particularly driven by money. My own practice, I only work half-time in private practice, half-time in public practice. To be honest with you, I, I much prefer my public sessions more than my private sessions. I like interacting with uh, doctors in training and with difficult, difficult medical situations. I love making unusual diagnoses. My nickname in my last two years of medicine was Spot. Uh, for spot diagnoses, because I used to bring these things out from the back of my head of unusual conditions, and sometimes I was right. So I'm not particularly money oriented. Some of our colleagues are. You're not going to have a Learjet. You're not going to be mega wealthy. Just take it as it comes. I've had a Porsche for 10 years. It was the worst decision of my life. It's like uh, buying a boat. I did have a tin boat for a while. And the old adage that the best day of your life is when you buy the boat, the best day of your life is when you buy the Porsche, the second best day is when you sell the boat or the Porsche. The Porsche was absolutely useless. So I, I, I drive an old uh, Nissan four-wheel drive, as does my wife, and they're very convenient cars, and uh, I couldn't care about money, as long as you've got enough. Yeah, that's certainly a really good message. So you're talking about your experiences, like your fellowship in the US, and then your work in West Africa as well. In the, the UK, UK as yeah. Well. yeah. So how do you think these experiences shaped your career path? Not as much as my time in Ghana, in West Africa. The tropical medicine course in Liverpool was fabulous. My time in Africa was terrific. A 170-bed, two-doctor hospital looking after everything. 120 caesarean sections in the seven months it took me to get very severe, pretty much deadly typhoid. And with that, I got involved with training ENT surgeons in PNG for a 16, 18-year period. We graduated 10 there, so every ENT condition in PNG I've got my fingerprints on when it's fixed up. I started Deadly Ears and I started Deadly Ears Precursor with the help from John Heron when he was Minister of Aboriginal Affairs. So I've, I've had a, some roles in that. I went to England after I finished my ENT training because at that stage you need to get your BTE, your Bean to England. If you don't go overseas, have a fellowship interstate with some guru in a non-GP specialty, the culture at that stage was, well, you, we taught you everything you know, so you don't know as much as us. If you go overseas, you can be at some relatively ordinary place in England 
they're doing lesser standard of ENT than what I was doing here, that many of the jobs in the UK are. You come back with a, a bit of a halo and nobody can say you haven't learnt the latest and the best. But in fact, uh, the, two, the two hospitals had a split job between St Mary's Hospital in London and the Royal Mars, and, and the Royal Mars is the National Cancer Hospital of Great Britain. It was fabulous. And Mary's was good too, a really good department, which also covered the Hammersmith Hospital, which has this incredible name of the Royal Postgraduate Medical School. So the English really do make up these names that sound very grand. Hammersmith was a place that invented CT scans and apparently the CT scanners were, uh, the the Beatles uh, spent their money developing CT scanners. They didn't need to worry about their records. The CT scans were actually called EMI scanners and EMI was the Beatles record label. But it was a fabulous hospital to be associated with. So I really enjoyed my time in the UK and got a lot out of it. Academically, it wasn't as strong as the job in America. So I got on very well with my consultant surgeons both Mary's and the Royal Marsden and my surgeon at the Royal Marsden said Chris you'd go really well in America they kind of have similar personalities to you I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or not and I said oh sure I've got my wife and four kids here and the Americans don't pay much but that's okay it'd be interesting so I got a job in the University of Virginia and the University of Virginia was the first public Ivy League University in America, founded, I think, in 1804 by Thomas Jefferson after he left the presidency and he fiddled with designing the buildings and stuff. But the University of Virginia was fabulous and it was a a very well-funded university and the academic department I was in was really, really good. I was a fellow there in head and neck surgery and you'd see all the cases. You'd take the final year's doctors about to graduate. You'd take them through the head and neck cases. You'd teach them hands-on. And any extraordinary case you'd do, it allowed me to go also to the library to look up things about the cases. Uh, It allowed me to put out a couple of papers, and we actually put out the first paper showing you don't need to take out half of somebody's head with a cancer in their sinuses. You can go quite close and rely on radiotherapy. And that's standard treatment these days, but gee, it caused a commotion when I was the first author on it in 1987. I really enjoyed that. It, uh, I didn't do as much cutting in America as first operator as I did in the UK, but the academic part of it really rounded me out, I thought, and got me interested in actually writing papers, which I wasn't that keen on when I was a, a medical student or a, a trainee in surgery. And since then, I think I got my name on about 65 or 70 papers and about eight book chapters. So you mentioned before about talking to the media so what is the AMA's role when it comes to advocating to the Queensland state government and how would you manage difference when it comes to politics? Yeah. Look, um, I'm very keen for the AMA to be a, a more effective lobbyist and not be seen to be pushing one side of politics, which is a problem for the AMA certainly 30 years ago. It was used by the left in Australian politics to pillory doctors, every media story would put greedy in front of doctor. And I remember having some heated discussions in my family's Christmas lunch over whether doctors were greedy or not. I said, I've never come across a greedy doctor. So we were pilloried by the left and treated with contempt by the right. Look, the AMA has to be a lobbying organisation. We need to be friendly with both sides of politics. I've been asked by some well-meaning doctors to suggest that I support the left side of politics in Australia. And I say, well, no, I don't, actually. I'm very middle of the road. For a doctor in Australia, federally, 
the greedy doctor politics was really quite ugly and to be very hard for a private practitioner more than 10 years ago to vote left at all because they were just trying to get votes out of putting doctors down. So how do I approach uh, politicians? I'm reasonably friendly with the Premier. When I was uh, chairman of the State Committee of the College of Surgeons, I was asked to go along to a box at the cricket, and there was Anastasia and a couple of other ministers, and she's a delightful lady, and we had a good long chat about privatisation of assets and various medical things and cricket things and I probably see her once a year. I've spoken to the Premier maybe three times over the whole COVID issue directly to talk about things. I've got a good relationship with Ros Bates, the Shadow Minister. She's terrific. The current Minister, Yvette Darth, is just delightful in Queensland. I've got a meeting David Christofuli this afternoon, the Leader of the Opposition in Queensland and I expect a good relationship with David, with uh, David Janetsky, his deputy. is great. We met him. So, look, the idea is that we are a balanced organisation. I know, as in Australian society, in fact, societies around the world, our younger members, medical students and young doctors, are by inclination a little bit more left uh, than the older people. It happens. It's life. We've got to represent both sides. We've got to represent both sides in things like voluntary assisted dying. We've got to be reasoned. We've got about 26 people working here at the AMA in Queensland. We sit down with our policy and our media people every week. We talk through policy with other doctors. Every Wednesday we catch up by phone to the leadership group within of doctors in AMA and we try to have a balanced and a reasonable opinion which doesn't promote doctors' financial at all, although there's been terrible erosion of doctors' incomes, their ability to practice medicine and forcing doctors to see many, many people a day. And there's been a squeeze of the public hospitals, but also there's been a squeeze in private medicine Australia, all done to keep our budget of health in the very lowest levels of the OECD at 9% of gross domestic product. And Australian patients are suffering for it. Certainly. I think what you're doing, the work, the work you're doing is amazing in that uh, area. I want to touch on the elephant in the room. So with COVID, we've seen the pandemic has really highlighted the challenges within the Australian health system, whether that be the need to focus on the social determinants of health or more on prevention, inadequate regional health infrastructure, or the need to further support research and innovation and also support doctors and patients as well. So keeping all this in mind, What would you say are the opportunities for medical leaders in the future, particularly here in Queensland? Australians are very practical. I think there's been uh, issues with social media and uh, lies. Initially, there were solid doubts about the safety of the vaccines. People who say the vaccines aren't safe, you know, there's now nearly 7 billion doses being given. With social media, you can't hide complications. They're incredibly safe. And we believe that 95% of Australians will get their vaccine. We, we believe about 75% are very happy to get it. And the other 20% who will get it need a little bit of prodding like they do for their childhood vaccine. So we'll get up to 95%. Well, we've got to get our system ready for a surge in cases. And we've got to get our population ready for the fact that they will get COVID. I'll get COVID, you'll get COVID. And we just want it to be a nice, mild COVID. What is the future for medical leadership? Look, to answer your question in that roundabout way, 
I think medical leadership has never had the respect it has now. The first time we've ever had, had a, I think, a doctor being governor of Queensland. It's, it's, it's fabulous. AMA has tried to be constructive during the COVID. We've tried not to criticise the Chief Health Officer and she's done an amazing job. Uh, there's been no community transmission deaths at all in Queensland and that is, we're one of the few places in the world. We're getting trade delegations from South Korea and Germany, etc. We want to come and do business in Queensland because your population do what they're told. When there was the Western Suburbs lockdown, I was asked how long will the lockdown be? It's been said it's only going to be a week. There's on ABC and I said, oh, I thought it was 50-50, it'll be a week because everybody's going to say, say it's going to be a, a flare-up. I said, look, the people there are going to do what they're told. There's 450 doctors, but also similar people understand what's going on. Generally, Queenslanders do what they're told. And I said, it's 95%, it'll last for be two weeks, but 50% will be able to stop it on Friday. And they stopped it on the Friday. And one of the reasons was that Jeanette was very proud of this. Jeanette's been trying to say, oh, it's probably because we listen to advice because we have cyclones and floods and we're used to trusting government and SES disaster response people. I don't know. We just don't seem to have the subculture of anti-authoritarianism and libertarianism. And when those terms are used here, it's just silly to think you have liberty to go and infect people and kill people. It's just, it's just screwy thinking. So the future of people of medical leadership in Queensland, I think this COVID pandemic will be remembered until our, my grandchildren die which will probably be at 80 or 90 years' time. And there'll be lessons to be learned, both positive and negative. And I think the role of doctors, that we've never been as respected as we are now. So finally, what would your advice be to medical students or doctors aspiring to enter the realm of medical leadership? I, I think if you want to do it, go for it. If you want to be in the leadership side of medicine, of being an administrator, yes, sure, do it. It's a very hard road. It's hard to be popular with your colleagues, to be a medical leader in hospitals. We need people with backbone and with the best things for patients, but also for their staff, which include doctors and treat everybody with respect. We do need those. The vast majority of doctors, their leadership roles uh, will be in um, societies and, uh, you know, the ENT Society, the College of Surgeons, the Council of General Practice. We do need people. And uh, if you're not in the tent, you, your voice is not heard. To be in the tent, you've got to pay your dues. I would seriously advise everybody to be a member of the AMA. We have to have the AMA to be viable into the future. It's a subscription organisation. Nobody wants to join bowls clubs and golf clubs these days. They're dying. People don't want to spend $1,300 to be a member of the AMA if they don't have to, and they don't have to, to practice as a doctor. But gee, you're just leaning on everybody else. You're a bit of a worm if you don't do it. You really have to influence the policy of doctors. The AMA is the only organisation which represents every branch of medicine to the community and to the government. And we need the voices heard. And if you're not a member of the AMA, it's very hard for us to hear it. There was a women in breakfast uh, breakfast last Thursday morning and to see 200 intelligent, energetic women at breakfast, it's uh, fabulous. The three speakers are all leaders in medicine in Queensland. 
And the take-home story was that every doctor is a leader. You can't get away from it. If you're a solo GP, you've got two or three staff you've got to look after and encourage them to do the right thing. You've got 2,000 patients in the country town, because that's what a GP needs to look after, who need to take your advice and believe you and follow you, and they won't do it if you're you know, just plain silly and unusual. You need people behind you. We're all leaders in the public hospital. The doctor is the most trained person in the room. So for me, it was 17 years from leaving school to being a consultant in the public hospital. But gee, by the time I was a second year, I was relieving registrar, non-training kind of posts. And you've got two young doctors with you. You've got a charge nurse who has done three years in university and 20 years in the in the University of uh, Public Life, public hospitals, and you've got to work cooperatively with everybody and the other nurses in the wards. You need to go out of your way to know their names. You need to be friendly. You need to be able to provide advice respectfully. They're the qualities of a leader, and every doctor needs to have leadership skills. So doctors who are aspiring to be a, a leader, maybe an accidental one like myself, maybe, if you've got the inclination, if you've got the interest, if you listen to other people's advice and think about it in the back of your mind and, uh, and treat everybody how they'd like to be treated and how you'd like to be treated yourself, go for it. We need more people to be involved in leadership positions. Professor Perry, thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was recorded by Daria Shah with production and editing by Daniel Seed and supported by the University of Queensland.